Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. This past week on The Traveler, we took a look at how Hurricane Dorian figuratively threw a meteorological blender at Cape Lookout National Seashore in North Carolina and sliced up its barrier islands. We also had a story from Denali National Park, where officials are hoping for a very, very, very cold winter that could greatly solidify the landmass that holds the Denali Park Road. And we raised the question of whether moose on Isle Royal National Park should be hunted by not just wolves, but also by humans. You can find those and other stories about the parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we catch up with Lori Ward, Executive Director of Washington's National Park Fund, to discuss how her organization manages to support not just one, but three national parks. We also visit with Ken Brower, son of the late David Brower, to get his take on whether ranching should be allowed at Point Reyes National Seashore. And we wrap things up by pointing out where in the national park system you can find wildlife this fall. While national parks possibly could survive without the support of friends groups, they'd be in a pretty sorry state. Across the country, these nonprofit organizations fund everything from trail work and alternative transportation to restoring historic buildings and connecting the next generation to parks and nature. But most of these organizations are connected to one park. Friends of Acadia raises support for Acadia National Park. The Zion National Park Forever Project brings in millions of dollars to support Zion National Park. And the Yosemite Conservancy works on behalf of Yosemite National Park. But there is one Friends organization that shoulders a larger mission, supporting three national parks. Today, we've invited Lori Ward, Executive Director of Washington's National Park Fund, to discuss this ambitious mission of theirs and some of the successful projects it's leveraged. Welcome to The Traveler, Lori. Thank you very much, Kurt. I look forward to visiting with you. Well, you know, let's start right at the top. I mean, how do you possibly manage to support three national parks, and why did you go in that direction as opposed to just, say, one national park? It's our mission. Plain and simple, our mission is to serve Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. And it's been our mission from day one, and we stay true to it and just see it as a real privilege. You know, in a way, I I, I see us more as generalists. We're able to cross all three parks as opposed to zeroing in and being of service to one. And we just embrace that and enjoy the opportunity to represent three such iconic national parks in our country. You know, uh, on one hand, I'm, I'm sure by supporting three national parks, it, it definitely enlarges your donor pool. But at the same time, you also have three times as many requests of support from, from those parks. Mm-hmm. We do. And I would just like to share how we, how we capture those requests. At the beginning of the calendar year, each park submits their top priorities that otherwise would go unfunded. And we set out to raise the money throughout the year. The parks are kind enough to um, ask and task their leadership teams to put the projects in priority order. So we we work our way down the list of priorities. So it's pretty straightforward. Uh, Sometimes foundations or individuals, families will come to us and say, you know, can can we focus in on this project down the list down here? And if they can fully fund it or nearly fully fund it, then we say yes, and, and we bump that one up. But um, it's, it's pretty clean how we operate and uh, pretty straightforward. You know, you have um, made possible a lot of diverse projects, and we'll get into some of those. And I understand that the parks present their list to you, but there are an awful lot of projects and programs that you're asked to support I, I have to imagine there's a, an equal number that you can't possibly support on, you know, every year. That's right. There are. We get maybe 20 priority projects from each of the parks up here in Washington State. And uh, we do our best to accomplish and, and raise enough for the top eight. That's always our goal, eight to ten top priorities for each park. And the more we are able to raise, the more we can expand that number, that goal, 
And, you know, every once in a while, like last year, we got a million dollar gift. Those come in and we're able to dig even deeper into the priority projects. So um, it's year to year and, and success as we grow. Um, yeah, it works. Is it, um, do you find yourself having to, and, and I don't want to get you in trouble, but do you find yourself, if you have, say, nine projects a year that you can fund, that three have to go to each of the three parks? I mean, how, how, do, you decide, how do you decide that? Yep. A number of the gifts come in restricted. People are able to direct their giving. And so when they're fully funded, then they're done, they're complete. And when we get down towards the end of the year and we have a, a pocket of unrestricted giving, we do divide it up between the three national parks and apply funds to each of the partially funded projects to complete them. Um, that's how we do it. We just stay focused on those priorities and take the unrestricted and divide it up. And there we go. Each park gets an equal share. Yeah. Now there was one huge project um, recently um, that actually, I believe, benefited all three parks, and that was the the computer aided dispatch system. Mm -hmm. Both um, Olympic and Mount Rainier chose to take a portion of an estate gift that came to Washington's National Park Fund, and was again equally divided between the three parks. And they did in they did install these these systems in the park so they are able to track employees and volunteers more readily than they ever could before. These parks are, um, you know, your listeners, um, if they've been here, these are parks with big back countries and um, people and park rangers go into the back country a lot. And just the peace of mind that the park has that they are able to track these individuals and um, for safety purposes, it's uh, it's it's been a real game changer for them. Uh, we believe that they deserve it. The employees, the rangers, the scientists, they do so much for the parks, and they, as employees, as well as their family, as well as the park family, they they you know we owe it to them to give them that measure of peace of mind so that they can know where their people are. Storms blow in pretty hard here, and when they do. You know, luckily these people are very skilled at hunkering down, but um, still, yeah. No, that, that's, that's got to provide a, a huge um, measure of um, satisfaction and, uh, from, from the employees as well as the park staff. I know in, in years past there have been instances where backcountry rangers um, out of communication and, and um, encountered some accidents that led to their deaths and uh, being able to um, more readily um, monitor um, a backcountry ranger has got to be uh, really satisfying. Yes, all the way around. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, now, just recently, one of the, the projects that you um, finished um, was uh, the search and rescue cabin at uh, Mount Rainier. That one, for me personally, is kind of near and dear. Um, volunteers travel through sometimes here's a story, 2 a.m. in the morning, Olympic mountain rescue team gets a call that they're needed in the park and they get up, they get into their vehicles and they travel to the park. They, um, and I'm talking Mount Rainier, you know, so as far as the Olympic Peninsula over to Mount Rainier, they're traveling there, get to the park at 6 a.m., trek in, find a woman who her leg was broken. She was there overnight, um, trek her out. And sometimes if storms blow in, they get stuck on the mountain and they, along with rangers who are a part of the rescue, and they then have to buckle down and spend the night. Um, and they would often do that either in their tents or if they're close enough to their vehicles, go back down and, and sleep in the vehicle. Now we have this cabin, it's called L123, it's one of the historic cabins at Rainier that's been totally preserved and they have a site to go to, not only for an overnight and a warm meal, a bowl of soup, um, a hot shower, but also they use the cabin for pre-rescue searches, pre-planning uh, meetings where they can all come together and, and strategize the best approach 
for the rescues that they're about to step into. This was a project, it was um, probably four years ago, maybe five, when Find Your Parks was, was coming on the scene and the National Trust for Historic Preservation did a campaign. American Express was involved. We were, it was a kind of social media campaign and we ranked number eight on the top 20 parks and this project was featured and people went on and selected it and um, it was a fun campaign and generated over 200000 between the the donors and the board of directors and donors at Washington's National Park Fund. So just really key project. Absolutely. Um, and yet there are also many projects that you um, managed to support that perhaps fly under the, the visitor's radar. Um, for instance, I noticed that you were able to, to fund a butterfly project at North Cascades National Park, and then there were marmot studies at both Olympic and North Cascades. What, what can you tell us about those uh, endeavors? I'm not a scientist, but this butterfly story is so sweet. Butterflies are a real strong barometer of the environment, and as they move up and down in within the ecosystems at North Cascades, um, it tells a lot to scientists. Now, that's about as much as I can go there, but we've been funding this project probably for maybe seven years, and citizen scientists, which are simply citizens who volunteer and have a passion to help their parks out and an interest in science, they go up into the North Cascades, right into the zone where the butterflies are, and capture them and so that they can do a butterfly count, and then they release them back. And the data is accumulated year after year and is very telling to the scientists up, at, up, at the, up in the North Cascades National Park. Marmots, tracking marmots is a sweet story. The marmots are very popular up here, and um, both uh, in the way that they greet the visitors as with their loud beep as they come into the park, but tracking them and monitoring their their dens, monitoring their movement, monitoring you know birth rates throughout the year, that is uh, another citizen science project that we fund, and then one that's um, been wildly successful appears the the fishers reintroduction of the fishers they're small they're from the weasel family mm-hmm. and they were wiped out back in the 30s 40s 50s by hunters and trappers and valuable fur and we have helped to fund that reintroduction first at Olympic and they get these couples of the the fishers bring them down from British Columbia release them and track them, and the success was good. So we then started applying it to Mount Rainier and now up at North Cascade. So we're reintroducing these critters that once called these iconic parks home. Um, I just think that's the right thing to do. Yeah, and they're an important element of the ecosystem as it naturally evolved. We've been talking uh, with Lori Ward, the executive director of Washington's National Park Fund. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at BRPFoundation.org. 
Okay, Lori, um, along with some of your huge projects, there are a number of uh, smaller but significant projects, as we were just talking about the, the butterflies and the, the marmot studies. I mean, your foundation has been able to support um, replanting of subalpine meadows at Paradise and Mount Rainier, um, a student conservation association climbing patrol intern at North Cascades, as well as safety equipment for law enforcement at North Cascades and a seasonal ranger at the Forks Ranger Station in Olympic National Park, um, just to name a, a couple of the initiatives that you've been able to fund. Were these from um, general dollars that you um, were donated to the, the fund, or, or were these um, some restricted funds that people you know, had a specific interest in those things? Excellent question. I've been in this field for over 30 years. I love it. I believe in it. And, um, and I'm talking about the field of philanthropy. And a solid nonprofit organization is one that has a diversified funding streams, diversified pie, and we get income from a number of areas, individuals, foundations, corporations, mailings, events, estate gifts, guest donation programs in the park, and, of course, our license plate program that generates over $200,000 a year. A portion of those dollars are unrestricted, and some are restricted for specific projects. Foundations, we go with foundations and corporations and like our fundraising climbs. They can pick, and uh, we pitch out projects to them that are in the top priorities for the parks. And uh, we have our over-the-top society where individuals, you know, moving on to the unrestricted, individuals give a minimum of $1,200 a year unrestricted, and we then are able to use those dollars to fund partially funded projects and take them up and over the top. So the the income comes from a number of different areas, and uh, that's kind of the fun of fundraising is that you you never know. You never know what's going to happen, and as long as you stay steady and true and growing in each of the areas year to year, um, yeah, it's a good thing. Now, with um, current budgets for the National Park Service, um, as we all know, visitation has really been climbing um, across the national park system, and yet the, the budget for the Park Service has remained relatively uh, static, and uh, I believe the workforce might actually have, have gone down a little bit. Do you find that the parks are approaching you with more requests for what, what we might call muscle and bone projects that in the past, the Park Service itself would have been able to fund. And for instance, at, at Yosemite, the uh, Yosemite Conservancy came up with, uh, I think, almost $20 million to help uh, with restoration of the Mariposa Grove. And on the East Coast, the, the Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation um, has been raising millions of dollars to um, you know, restore the, the Moses H. Cone um, Manor, as well as uh, work on the, the Bluffs Restaurant there along the parkway. Do you, do you see more requests along those lines that uh, instead of providing that extra margin of excellence or frosting on top of the cake that uh, you're, you're being asked to build the cake, so to speak? We're not being asked. We are requesting that from Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. We have very big vision for these parks. We do not in any way portray that we are filling the gaps for the federal government. That's their job. But there are areas that go unfunded that private philanthropy can have a huge impact in. And so we're in the process right now of getting our sites much bigger and very excited about it. There's huge potential, and we know that the people care deeply about these national parks up here in Washington State. So we're, we're, we have grand vision for what lies ahead, Kurt, and excited about it, confident that we'll be able to, to achieve the goals that we're beginning to set. The people care deeply about these national parks, um, and the parks have not been out asking. And so I, I feel like it's the park's time. You know, universities and, and hospitals are asking all the time, year after year, and um, I think it's the national park's turn. So we're excited about what lies ahead for this. So, so what sort of projects do you envision taking on? We, over the years, have been focused on science and research, youth and family programs, improving visitor experiences, and volunteerism and stewardship. And we see those maintaining, but also expanding majorly volunteer programs at Mount Rainier, 
trail maintenance in all three parks. That's an, a year-in, year-out thing that has to happen. People think, well, you just fix them once and they're done. But no, with the landslides and snowfall that damage the trails in the wintertime here, uh, they need constant care. Youth and families, we want to get – there are so many young people up here that – have the mountain or the range in their backyard or the coast out on, on the Olympic Peninsula, and they never get to go for various reasons. And we are starting to focus in on getting busloads of them up into the park for the first time. So we will continue to focus on youth and family. Um, you know, just trail maintenance, not things so much like road maintenance. That's not our job. That's the federal government. Um, building structures there, maintenance there, that's not our job. That's their job. But historic buildings like the search and rescue cabin that mm-hmm. without funding would just fall down or sit unused. We want to preserve some of those buildings. That gives you a sense of the direction and the vision that we have. Yeah. yeah. Now. Um... Along that line, you have a fundraiser coming up in October. We do. It's quite lovely, actually. Benaroya Hall is our local outstanding location where the symphonies in the area go to perform. Northwest Symphony Orchestra will be performing them there on October 23rd. And in the backdrop behind the performance are images of national parks and videos of um, from donors and volunteers and friends of the national parks that they submit to us. We project them up on the screen and the good people at Benaroya, uh, they time it so that the images that you're seeing are timed beautifully with the performance from the symphony. I personally have never been a big symphony person, but I we last year was the first time we did this and I absolutely loved it. And so many people that came, it sold out last year, 11, 1,200 people. So many people that came last year just said, oh, this is so perfect. It's a celebration of the national parks with incredible music in the forefront. So that's coming up. Tickets are selling quickly. We're fortunate. And, um, again, it's Wednesday, October 23rd here in Seattle at Benaroya Hall. Do they um, do they come up with a, a new composition to, to pair with uh, the imagery? Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's amazing. It is it is really inspiring. Yeah, each where, park has their own composition. Where can folks get the tickets? Either at Benaroya or on our site. We have it linked, and our website is WNPF, Washington's National Park Fund, WNPF.org. And, again, it's just linked right from, you'll see the, the events um, okay. icon up in the upper right, and you go there and purchase your tickets. And I will say the beauty, too, is, we want many people to have the opportunity to experience this. Tickets range in price from $29 up to $59. So it's a very affordable evening out. Yeah, it sounds like it. Well, thanks so much today, Lori, for um, sharing some time with us and explaining uh, exactly some of the great work that you're doing up there in the Olympic and Mount Rainier and North Cascades National Parks in Washington. You, you certainly have an ambitious mission, and it really sounds like you're hitting um, on all cylinders and making it come true. Thank you. We are with the help of hundreds and hundreds of people. And I want to thank you, Kurt, for the work that you do and the way that you tell the stories of the national parks across this great country. In my opinion, the National Park Traveler is is the top parks podcast that people listen to. So thanks for what you're doing. Well, thank you. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. 
Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. There is on the West Coast a unit of the National Park System that has perhaps attracted more undue attention than other units in recent years, and that is Point Reyes National Seashore. A half dozen years ago, the seashore was in the middle of a debate into whether an oyster farm should be allowed to operate in Drake's Estero, which is part of the Philip Burton Wilderness at the National Seashore. That debate ended with then-Interior Secretary Ken Salazar refusing to extend the oyster farm's lease, and the courts agreed. While Salazar did voice support for ranchers who grazed cattle on parts of the seashore, an ensuing legal battle forced the National Park Service to prepare a general management plan addressing both cattle and the seashore's herds of tule elk. The public comment period on the seashore's draft proposal ended last Monday, Ken Brower, son of David Brower, the first executive director of the Sierra Club, weighed in with a letter to the seashore superintendent. In it, he noted that his father and the Sierra Club were strong proponents of establishment of Point Reyes National Seashore, and that David Brower was in the Oval Office when President Kennedy signed the legislation creating the seashore. Ken Brower joins us today to discuss the choice the National Park Service has to make at Point Reyes. Thanks for joining us, Ken. Thanks for having me. Now, there certainly are differing and certainly very strong positions on whether the proponents of the National Seashore intended for ranching to be an ongoing aspect of Point Reyes. You believe that those who pushed to see the seashore established intended for ranching to be phased out. Why is that? All the history that I've understood and, and from being there on the ground and watching this happen as a as a subteen and then a teenager, is that 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 was the plan? Um, it was to be a national park. The um, the best source for this is uh, Paul Saden, who did a administrative history of the national uh, of that national seashore, and um, he points out that that the objectives in the beginning, uh, well, I actually could read it. The objectives objectives were to to respond and hopefully mollify the objections of the ranchers. It was uh, uh, they were granted leases uh, for 25 years of ownership plus or survival of a, a spouse to continue in the uh, ranching. It was, it was always a stopgap measure. It was intended to, uh, to lessen the county tax burden, to um, mollify the, the ranchers who objected, and, uh, and it was to allow time to acquire the land because the, the government did not have enough money at the beginning when the park was first founded to to um, acquire all the land. So this allowed time for government acquisition of the all the ranch lands that would that are now included in the park. Now, um, certainly, um, uh, there, there are four four national seashores in the park system, and certainly they, they differ quite a bit. Um, you can go from Cape Cod and, and Cape uh, Hatteras, which are pretty heavily built out, and uh, Cape Hatteras has a lot of uh, over sand traffic on the beaches there. Um, to Cape Lookout, which is uh, certainly um, a wild seashore in, in the aspect that there are no villages on it and no paved roads. It's just uh, pretty much uh, sand and, and ocean and a beautiful setting. And then you've got Point Reyes, which is um, somewhat different, no, in that it does have, have this ranching community and had the oyster farm. Was there never an intent to kind of incorporate the... Um, the livelihoods that uh, made up that part of California. This is the myth that's being propagated by the ranchers and their and their advocates is that this was always the intent that it was um, that the idea of continued ranching was integral to the original idea of the of, of the park of establishing the park. And in fact, the the ranchers were in the end partners, but they were dragged kicking and screaming to the table. They sent delegations to Washington and to the county uh, supervisors to, to try to stop the, uh, the, the park. They were very much against the park. Um, but the idea was never that, it, that no one ever, um, Clem Miller, who was the author of the language of the bill, never intended 
as I say, it was stopgap. It was, it was, um, and Miller, Miller said this uh, himself. Texas will respond and modify the ranches to ease the tax burden and not to be there forever. And in fact, when when Tim Miller tried to sell this idea to his colleagues in Congress, um, it was the last thing he wanted to do was feature uh, uh, ranching as a as a virtue of this part because because all his colleagues were very understandably nervous about the idea of, of commercial ranching in a national park. You know. Uh, we normally think of national parks as being places sort of free of commerce and, and, um, and not, uh, and why private ranching should continue would, uh, would have made no sense to Miller. And, and he did not feature it. Um, nobody talked about it in the beginning. This is uh, something that has been dreamed up since by the, the people who, the ranchers and the people who favor their, their presence there forever. Now, you also note in your, your letter to the superintendent that uh, the Park Service's preferred alternative would would go a little bit more than just allowing cattle ranching there. Um, it would allow for diversification in the livestock that could be grown there, bringing in possibly pig farms, um, bed and breakfast establishments, and more. That was never really the intention of the founders either, was it? It never was. It, um, the... This this, uh, this new plan is uh, that the Park Service has come up with is in response to a lawsuit by three uh, environmental groups out west that were um, that that uh, forced the park to uh, revise their general management plan. They were 20 years overdue. Um, they were way late. They were obligated uh, to renew it 20 years ago and haven't done it. So one of the grounds of the suit was that they needed to renew this. Um, their general management plan to accommodate these issues. And the, the Park Service has come up with this uh, series of alternatives from A to F. The, the preferred alternative A is to do nothing, just to maintain uh, operations as is. B is this one you describe, and it's um, nothing that the founders would have ever dreamed of. And it is, the, it is a total capitulation to the rancher interests. The... Um, what the environmentalists have been asking for and asking for in their comment letters and, and op-eds and in the lawsuits is to end ranching. Um, the, the ranching doesn't belong in a national park. Um, it's a, it, it's a, um, it, it's given the part a split personality. Um, you know, it's, it's two ideals of land stewardship are at odds here. Protection versus um, production. They, 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 they don't go together. And in fact, in this park, um, it's been just continual civil war between um, ranchers and normal park interests. And the oyster war is a perfect example. Um, and it completely disrupted the Park Service for, for almost eight years of fight with, with this uh, Drake's Bay Oyster Company and their advocates. Um, they had the ear of, of politicians. And, and it, in the end, the uh, the taxpayers had to pay $4 million to clean up uh, the wreckage of this, of this oyster farm. You know, commerce and parks really aren't meant to go together. And, and uh, it was never the idea in the beginning. Now, in, um, we recently ran uh, two different op-eds on the question of ranching at Point Reyes. And um, one, one, one said, uh, took the position that it was time to, to really phase out ranching. And it's been a, a, an environmental nightmare for the landscape there. And another one uh, was of the opinion that ranching is good for the, uh, the grasslands there and that it keeps the grasslands healthy and whatnot. And uh, ranchers are good stewards. Um, you have a perspective on that. Yes. Um, and I invite anybody to take a drive through the ranching country to, to anybody who knows anything about range management to think that these are well-managed ranches. They're, um, they're the prime primary source of, of water pollution in the park. Their methane from cows is the primary greenhouse gas um, uh, source in the parks. Um, why, why in the national parks we should be featuring uh, a methane gas in, in these huge amounts and the kind of damage the water said. Some of the most um, polluted streams in, in California are in this national park because of these uh, of these ranches. And, and this is clear in a number of reports that the National Park Service itself has, has, has delivered. They, they've said as much. Um, they said that, that uh, spreading manure near, uh, near the stream courses is not only bad for the streams, but it's the, one of the primary contributors of, of, of 
alien grasses. Uh, in spite of their own reports, the, the Park Service is taking this position, and it's, and it's just pure political pressure. Uh, I, I'm sure that there are good people in the Park Service. I'm sure they know that this isn't right, but they, they don't have a choice. I, 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 I myself don't know where the decision is being made, whether it's at the regional level or where. But, but in spite of all the evidence that the Park Service itself adduces that, the, that, these, that the range is being da- damaged by these animals, they're going ahead with the worst possible option. And the final, their their last option, F, alternative F, is um, is to eliminate ranching. They've they've uh, they've completely prejudiced the the um, they've they've called this B the the, the ranching for everyone uh, their preferred choice, and it involves um, introducing now uh, um, goats, sheep, row crops, diversification. The ranchers call it, and have demanded for it. And the Park Service is acceded to this. And, and anybody who knows um, ranchers and knows what's going to happen when you have sheep and goats, in addition to cattle and chickens, to predators, uh, uh, to the predators in that park. What's going to happen to coyotes, bobcats, cougars? We have a few in the park. What's going to happen uh, as soon as these rural crops and, and chicken farms and hogs and Sheep go in. Cattle can take care of themselves against um, against predators there, but but those animals can't. Uh, anybody who knows the history of the West knows what's going to happen after these after this diversification goes in, after this preferred alternative proposed by the Park Service goes in. We've been talking uh, with Ken Brower, the son of the late David Brower, the first executive director of the Sierra Club and a staunch proponent of the Point Reyes National Seashore um, on the Park Service's upcoming decision on how to deal with cattle ranching at the National Seashore. Mr. Brower, we appreciate your time today, and it certainly will be an interesting decision that the Park Service has to make. Thank you. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Well, it's official. Fall is here. And that means animals and birds across the national park system are preparing for winter. For bears, that means eat constantly to fatten up before you slow down for the winter. Many birds are already on their migration routes. Elk and other ungulates are preparing for the mating ritual, the rut. Take a look or stop and listen. In many national parks this fall, and you'll catch a glimpse of this autumnal spectacular. One of the most hair-raising fall sounds to the uninitiated is that of a bugling bull elk. These bulls summon their harems with both signs of dominance and sounds of, well, it's hard to describe an elk bugle as it starts out shrill and tumbles off to a guttural grunt. Here's a look of where you might go this fall to see and hear elk, and other wildlife in the national park system. There are no elk at Acadia National Park, but the mountains on Mount Desert Island, anchored just off the coast of Maine, are a great spot to watch migrating birds. Thousands of birds of prey, including falcons, hawks, ospreys, and eagles, migrate across Acadia during the autumn. Each year, thousands of park visitors join Hawk Watch to see and learn more about these fascinating birds. In fact, this year marks the 25th anniversary of this popular program. From now through late October, 
park rangers and volunteers working with staff from the Scudic Institute atop Cadillac Mountain help visitors find and identify birds passing by and provide natural history information on these raptors and related topics. Data collected on raptors contributes to a regional picture of hawk populations generated from data collected at similar sites all over New England. Now, since the Blue Ridge Parkway follows the Appalachian ridges for 469 miles, it attracts migrating birds and birders. The locals tell you that any place where there's a gap, you're likely to see a good selection of birds on the parkway. Go early in the morning. The two hours after dawn is the best window of opportunity. In North Carolina, Mills River Overlook at milepost 404.5 is a popular place to watch the hawk migration. At milepost 364.1, walk up Craggy Pinnacle between now and November to see broad-winged, red-tailed, red-shouldered hawks, Cooper's hawks, and even sharp-shinned hawks. The base of Mount Mitchell at Ridge Junction Overlook, milepost 355.3, at Black Mountain Gap is one of the best spots in the Blue Ridge to enjoy the fall migration of warblers and other passerines. Cumberland Island off the coast of Georgia is another favorite stopping point on the migratory flyway. More than 335 species of birds have been recorded at Cumberland Island National Seashore. The list of birds is available at the park's visitor center. The park biologist notes that Rosetta spoonbills and even white pelicans can be seen from the boat on the way to the island. Once on the island, the freshwater pond areas provide excellent rookeries for wood storks, white ibis, herons, and egrets. In the forest canopy, you can also see warblers, buntings, wrens, and woodpeckers. On the shores, osprey, peregrine falcons, and occasionally bald eagles, and even golden eagles are spotted. Wild turkeys are plentiful on the south end of Cumberland Island, where the ferry lands. They're protected, so they're not skittish. Wildlife in Everglades National Park becomes a bit easier to spy in the fall, as the dry season, which begins in December and runs into April, commences and wildlife head for waterholes. The park is renowned for bird life, with more than 350 species seen in the Everglades, and many head to the park during the dry season to hang out and nest. In the fall, patient birders might be rewarded with a sighting of a rare short-tailed hawk. Only about 50 to 100 of these raptors can be found in the Everglades from October to late February, so you have to be at the right place at the right time and with a good deal of luck. Other common species that show up in the fall include pied-billed grebes, brown pelicans, double-breasted and anhinga cormorants, great blue herons, little blue herons, black-crowned night herons, white ibis, and a variety of ducks and shorebirds. Download a copy of the park's species list from the Everglades National Park website before you go so you know what to look for. Glacier National Park in Montana seems to have almost every large mammal, from elk to black bears and grizzly bears to moose. More frequently seen than the grizzlies, however, are the snow-white mountain goats that thrive on the steepest slopes along the continental divide in the park. These animals with their professorial goatees often can be seen in the meadows along Logan Pass and even on the trails to the Granite Park and Speary Chalets. Sometimes you can spot bighorn sheep on the cliffs that run along the garden wall that follows the divide through the park. Glacier is a large park surrounded by other public lands that was created early enough, back in 1910, to offer protection to these animals. With a lot of luck, you might see a wolf, mountain lion, or lynx. Look at the park's mammal checklist on the Glacier National Park website to know exactly what to watch for. Fall also is a great time to see bird migrations in Glacier. Many folks have learned to watch for golden eagles migrating along the Continental Divide Flyway in mid-October. These big birds fly south from Alaska and Canada along the west side of the Continental Divide. They're visible from the Mount Brown Lookout on the west side of the park. It's a steep hike, 5.3 miles one way, but worth it to view hundreds of golden eagles headed south. Down in Wyoming, the folks at Grand Teton National Park help you watch wildlife in the fall with their two-page flyer that discusses where visitors can find animals. You can find this list on the park website. It points out that the lush meadows nudging up along the northern shores of Jackson Lake attract mule deer and elk. In Willow Flats, a marshy expanse right behind the Jackson Lake Lodge, you often can spot moose and elk. Pronghorns, similar to antelopes and known to be the fastest land animals in North America, 
might be seen at the southeast end of Jenny Lake, or, better yet, along the sagebrush flats along the Snake River and surrounding Mormon Row. You'll also likely to spot bison there as well. The Oxbow Bend stretch of the Snake River is also famous for its bird life. White pelicans, trumpeter swans on occasion, osprey, and even bald eagles show up here. Otters occasionally can be seen frolicking on the riverbanks, and moose love this area too. Park staff also recommend Timbered Island, a forested ridge southeast of Jenny Lake. There, small bands of pronghorn antelope often can be seen foraging on nearby sagebrush throughout the day. Elk leave the shade of Timbered Island at dawn and dust to eat the grasses growing along the surrounding sagebrush. Now, whether you're visiting Great Smoky Mountains National Park, Rocky Mountain National Park, or Olympic National Park, the best time to go in search of bugling elk is right around dawn or dusk. In the Smokies, your best opportunity to watch and listen to elk runs through the end of October in the Cataloochee Valley on the southeast section of the park. Wild turkeys also are active, and toms are strutting their stuff through the fields, their big feathers spread out. Elk and turkeys aren't the only highly visible wildlife in Great Smoky Mountains National Park in the fall. Over on the western side of the park, in Cades Cove, deer can often be seen in the open fields, while bucks with large antlers keep weaker males away and attract a harem, much like elk bulls do. Deer just don't bugle. Still, their antics during the rut is something to watch and to keep your distance from. Black bears also call the Cades Cove area home, and in fall they come down into the orchards to get some fresh fruit. Migratory birds also are popular to watch in the park. At higher elevations, flocks of migrating broad-winged hawks often can be seen when the first cold front comes through. With that cold front, raptors follow the Appalachian Range, riding the thermals over the land. The best vantage points in Great Smoky Mountains National Park include Newfound Gap, Klingman's Dome, Look Rock, and Indian Gap. Over on the west coast, in Olympic National Park, the whole rainforest is an excellent place to see Roosevelt elk. These animals don't migrate, preferring to stay in the hoe area year-round and banding together in herds of around 20 females and calves. Roam the rocky coastline of Olympic, and, if your eyes are sharp and the weather favorable, you just might be able to see some of the park's marine life. The Olympic coast lies along the migratory path of both California and stellar sea lions. Biologists say the sea lions haul out in masses on the abundant offshore rocks, amiably alongside their larger cousins. These whiskered creatures are often visible on the islands off the coast of Cape Flattery and Cape Alva, arriving in late summer or early fall and often staying through spring. Though elk in Rocky Mountain National Park were hunted extensively and almost disappeared by 1890, as people settled the Estes Valley, animals transplanted from Yellowstone just before the establishment of Rocky Mountain National Park in 1915 helped to rebuild the herds. Predators such as wolves and grizzly bears were hunted extensively in the area, and that helped the swift growth of the elk population. Most of the areas in Rocky Mountain National Park where elk rut are in the open meadows, which just happen to be near roads, so viewing the rut is easily accessible. Some of the best places to view and hear elk in Rocky Mountain National Park are Moraine Park, Horseshoe Park, and Upper Beaver Meadows. In Shenandoah National Park in Virginia, the wildlife viewing in the fall is about as rewarding as the leaf peeping. Bears, deer, and migratory birds all are visible if you take the time to look. Many folks come to Shenandoah specifically to see black bears, the many old apple orchards established by homesteaders before they left for creation of the park can be bear magnets, so be careful while you're out there hiking. And while white-tailed deer seem almost tame, they're definitely not. A doe will protect her young as ferociously as a grizzly sow does. You often can spot deer congregating in the fields by Skyline Lodge. Black bears and bobcats hide in the forest and are harder to see. Coyotes, an adaptable predator not native to the area, Nevertheless, keep moving eastward, and they might show up as well. Finally, Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming is renowned for its wildlife. Moose, elk, pronghorn, bison, wolves, grizzlies, black bears, and so much more. In the fall, some of your best bets are the roads that lead you through the park. The Lamar Valley on the northern end, 
the Hayden Valley in the central, and even the road between West Yellowstone and Madison Junction are perfect places to go in search of elk and bison. Keep a sharp eye on the hillsides around these areas, and you just might see some wolves or a grizzly bear or two. Of course, animals and bears might not be where people have last seen them. These are wild animals, so there's no guarantee you'll see anything when you visit. Study a park's website before you go, and make the visitor center your first stop when you enter a park. And remember, while fall is a great time to watch wildlife in the parks, stay safe. Parks have various rules on how close visitors should get to wild animals. Approaching on foot within 100 yards of bears or wolves, or within 25 yards of other wildlife, is prohibited. If you change the behavior of an animal, you're too close, and you just might get sighted by a ranger. No matter which park you head to, bring your camera, your binoculars, and a field guide or two. Enjoy the season, and may you have good luck in looking for wildlife. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. For The Traveler, I'm Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park Audio Series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.